Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Alrighty, if you've got a Bible, you can open it to John's Gospel, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. we got names going on the clipboard. This is smart. Very smart. John chapter 1, we began in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1, reads as follows. Isn't this exquisite theology right up front, pouring out of the mouth and heart of John, the apostle? He declares these famous words, in the beginning, and we think of creation, Genesis chapter 1, and all the Jews who are listening in the congregation are drawn in immediately In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John tells us then in chapter 4, verse 14, that this Word is Jesus. The Word became flesh. And so John's prologue, this opening statement, is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the living Word, and He was there at the beginning with God. How many of you have watched Narnia? You could put your hand up. Wow, lots of you. Narnia, the lion which... And the wardrobe, hey, what an incredible story. C.S. Lewis invites us into this adventure. And I want to just talk a little bit quickly about this climactic scene in the movie and in the book. And the climactic scene is as follows. You've got Lucy and you've got Susan, and they're watching as hundreds of monstrous creatures are surrounding the great lion Aslan. Don't put that one up yet. You didn't see that, right? And they're surrounding Aslan, and Aslan's on the stone table. And at the center of all of these awful creatures is the witch. And the witch tells her servants to tie Aslan, the lion, up. And they tie him up. And at first, they're a little bit nervous because he's the great lion, right? And they're nervous, but they're tying him up. And and as they're tying him up, Aslan doesn't resist. Aslan doesn't fight back. And so the the servants of the witch get bolder and they begin to shave off his mane and they begin to pull at him and they begin to beat and kick him. And Aslan doesn't protest. And so they bind him to the stone table and the witch approaches with a stone knife and the witch says to Aslan, I'm going to kill you instead of Edmund. And we immediately realize that Aslan's substituting his life for Edmund. Edmund made the error. And, and so this was the agreement. That, that, and then the witch says, this sacrifice will appease the deep magic, she says. And then the witch explains that even though she will kill Aslan, when he's dead, she's going to go after the kids. How evil. How evil. She gets rid of the biggest threat, and then she still goes after the kids and the, and the scene ends with Lucy and Susan covering their eyes because they don't want to see the witness of the murder of Aslan. But in the midst of all of this, we have this quote. Next slide. Aslan speaks up and he says, Do not cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. I was there when it was written. And so the, the witch is quoting the ancient story. The ancient tale, as if he didn't know. 
And Aslan speaks up and says, who do you think you are? I was there when it was written. And Aslan dies on that stone table, but then Aslan is raised to life. And it's a parable. It's a story of the life of Jesus. If you haven't read it or watched it, I recommend it to you. The point is this. C.S. Lewis knew who Jesus was. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God. He was there in the beginning. He was there when it was all written. C.S. Lewis knew. This is John's point. John's point is, do you know who Jesus is? Now, we pick up the story in verse 19. John's prologue ends in verse 18. And today we're in part three. And so we read on from verse 19 to 34. So here we go. And this is the testimony of John. Now, whenever the Bible in John's gospel speaks about John, you've got the apostle John writing it, but he's writing about John the Baptist. All right. So every time it speaks about John, it's John the Baptist, at least in the first few chapters. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Isn't it interesting that John's purpose is to describe to us who is Jesus? And the very question being asked of John is, are you the Christ? Who are you? What we see here, firstly, point number one, is that witnesses are windows. We see this word mentioned numerous times, this word witness. John bore witness. We see it in verse 19. We see it right at the end. This is the testimony of John. John's giving testimony to what he saw when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. He's being interrogated. 
This isn't just a casual inquiry. This is an interrogation. This is intimidation. John is under pressure. Will he give in? Will he cave? Will he pretend to be someone he's not? Look at verse 32 and 34. It says, and John bore witness. Ha-ha, he stuck to his guns. He actually gave testimony. He was intimidated, but he declared what he believed. Here's what he said. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him. In other words, there was no way to identify him. He wasn't great. He wasn't like anything yet. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, John, John the Baptist's point is, I can't deny what I've seen. I don't care how intimidating you are. I don't care how strong the intimidation is, the interrogation. I have seen and therefore I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So what's the point here? The first thing we need to see here is that God has chosen to make witnesses windows through which we get to see Jesus. John was one of the first witnesses. He witnessed Jesus. He saw Jesus. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus. And the point is this, that he is a witness so that we too can see Jesus. Now, you might be asking, well, how does that work? Well, let me illustrate it for you. If you work in law... Or if you work in insurance, now you might not work in either of those, but you can just imagine with me that often then you will be required to figure out who was at fault, who was really at fault. You know, if you're an insurance broker or if you're a lawyer, sometimes maybe it might be a car accident or who pulled the actual trigger or who threw the first punch. And as a lawyer or as a judge, you've got to figure these things out. And in order to figure it out, what you do, part of your strategy is you call upon eyewitnesses. Those who were at the event, those who were on the scene. And so you've got to do a bit of work. You've actually got to go and interview those eyewitnesses or consult those eyewitnesses because they were on the scene. They saw it unfold. And so you have a conversation and you hear their testimony and they will tell you, well, that guy actually jumped the red light and so it was his fault or it was actually the other guy who was hiding behind the pole, he pulled the trigger or it was actually this guy over here, he wasn't drinking but he threw the first punch, whatever it might be. And you hear the story from the eyewitnesses and as you're listening to the story, you go, okay, I see how it happened. But you weren't there. But now you see, Right? The reason you see how it happened is because of eyewitnesses who saw. And that's how we do life. And this is the point. God sent witnesses to declare who Jesus was, to make him known to us. And so verse 7 it says it this way. He came, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. There's the goal. He wants us to believe. God actually gives evidence. He sends eyewitnesses. He doesn't just come and make personal claims. No, no, he gives evidence through eyewitness. Now listen to how the Apostle John says this in 1 John. So the guy who's actually writing the Gospel of John also penned 1 John. And in 1 John 1, verses 1 to 3, I want you to see the, 
the similarities of the language of John 1, the gospel, and 1 John 1. Don't get confused. Two different things. One's a gospel, one's an epistle. But listen to the language here. The apostle John says this, that which was from the beginning. Sound familiar? Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, eyewitnesses, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, he's speaking about Jesus, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see this because witnesses are windows, not only for us to see, but that we may experience. Because do you see what he says here? At the end, he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Because we as Christians today might go, oh, but you know, we, so, we, we don't have the privilege. These guys saw Jesus. These guys touched Jesus. These guys ate meals with Jesus. How are we meant to know that he's real? And John says, that they are witnesses through which we see so that we too can have fellowship with them. In other words, the apostolic witness we get invited into because we too can have fellowship with the Son. It's incredible. We get to have the same experience that the apostles have because they are witnesses and we have the entire New Testament. They only had three years of a window into the life of Jesus. We have those three years recorded in the Gospels. We have an explanation of those three years in all of the epistles. We have such riches available to us in the New Testament, windows through which we experience Jesus. Second point, not only are witnesses windows, witnesses are messengers. We see this in verse 22 and 23. So they said to them, well, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I, I, I'm a voice. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, what we, what we realize here at this particular point is that John the Baptist is actually a crucial figure in the unfolding of God's plan. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the first to declare the arrival of the Messiah. So here's the, here's the scene for John. After 400 years of prophetic silence, the last prophet before John was Malachi. And before him, there were many prophets. But after Malachi, the prophet, there was 400 years where God did not send a prophet to Israel. 400 years of silence. In other words, they had to rest on what had been said prior. But it was a long time. And now suddenly, on the scene, is a fiery preacher with long hair and a beard, and he eats locusts. It's like something's going on here. I, I, if John were alive today, if John the Baptist were alive today, he'd be a YouTube sensation, right? He'd have thousands of followers and a few lucrative book deals. What John does here is he quotes from 
Isaiah 40, verse 3. He quotes the Isaiah, the great Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's not only quoting it, he's fulfilling it. The prophet Isaiah prophesied 700 years beforehand that what God was going to do is that he was going to raise up a prophet and this prophet would prepare the way for the Messiah. And right here in this particular moment, we see John is that voice. Isaiah said, there's coming a voice. There's going to be a voice. After silence, there's going to be a sound. After a long time of silence, there's going to be a voice in the wilderness. And the voice will be crying, prepare the way. And John is that voice. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to see what Jesus says about John a little bit later in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest person in the entire Old Testament. Jesus says that John is the goat of the Old Testament, right? And there's, there's debates about who's the goat in football or in tennis, the greatest of all time, if you don't know. So there's debates about all these things, but Jesus settles it for us. He says, this is who's the goat of the Old Testament. Have a look at this, Matthew 11, verse 11. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, we've got to think, well, you know, I, I don't think he was that great. You know, he was pretty random. Yes, he had a couple of followers. He baptized a few people. He wasn't that impressive. Why does Jesus have such a high estimation of him? Why does Jesus say he's the greatest? And there's a few things we could look at. One of them, theologically, is that it was his prophetic proximity to the fulfillment. So all of the prophets beforehand prophesied hundreds of years about the coming of the Messiah. And they were great in their prophecies, but their proximity was they were far removed. So maybe Jesus doesn't measure greatness the way we think of greatness. We think of greatness in terms of accomplishment, but Jesus sees greatness in terms of proximity to Jesus. This changes how we see greatness. If you want to be great in life, actually it's about proximity to Christ. I think that's a powerful argument. That John was great. He's the greatest of all Old Testament prophets because he actually saw Jesus. He didn't just prophesy about his coming. He actually saw him. But let me submit to you that our text here strongly gives us reasons why John is so great. So here's the first reason under point two is that his humility made him great. His humility made him great. I think John was a popular preacher. There were crowds of people that came to him. They walked through desert days. They walked long distances to come and hear him preach. And anyone with this kind of rapport or preaching audience could have had a massive ego, right? But not John. John was humble. In fact, some people even thought he might be the Messiah, which is why they come to him and go, who are you? Are you the Christ? And look at verse 20. He says, no, I'm not the Christ. That could have been quite tempting, right? You could have started a cool movement. But John says, no, forget it. I'm not the Christ. And then he goes on in verse 21 and says, 
And they asked him, well, what then are you? Are you Elijah? And John's like, no. So, so here's the thing. They thought that maybe, because Elijah never died, remember? And they're thinking, maybe he's come back. Maybe Elijah's come back. You know, what's very interesting is that actually John does come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. And then they go on and they think he's Moses. They go, are you the prophet, the great prophet Moses? And John doesn't go, you know what, I could, I could earn some bucks out of this. You know, if we start a movement, we could leverage this and we could start to preach about, you know, if you give away certain, then you get back, you know, and I could pull the Moses card. You know, you've got to listen to me, people. No, he doesn't play the Moses card. He says, no, I'm not Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. What does he say? He says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. Now, what does a voice look like? I don't know. It doesn't wear anything. I mean, it, you, can't, you can't see a voice, right? All you do is hear a voice. John doesn't want to be seen. He says, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm a forerunning voice. I'm a forerunner. John was great because of his humility. John could have been, he, he really could have played this up. He could have been, you know what, I'm actually quite a big deal in this whole story. You know, I'm actually, I was chosen by God to be the forerunner. You know, don't forget I'm the cousin of Jesus. Don't forget that I was filled with the Holy Spirit in my mom's womb. You know, he could have played all of these things. He could have been like, listen, people walk for miles to hear me preach. And if you haven't noticed, I've baptized quite a lot of people. But he doesn't. He says, I'm just a voice. And then he goes on and he says it later on. He says, John answered them. He said, I baptize with water, yes. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What does he mean by that? R.C. Sproul tells us, listen to this quote. He says, when John said, I am not even worthy to unstrap his sandals, he was saying, don't look at me. I am lower than a disciple. I am even lower than a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, to take off his sandals, to clean his feet. Don't look to me. Look to him. You know, so often in life we measure greatness by popularity, by people being bold and brash, but Jesus sees greatness as humility. So often we want people to be impressed with us. We, we, we love approval. We, we want people to be impressed with us. But I think John the Baptist has got this right. He wanted people to be impressed with Jesus. The second reason we see here for why he was so great, why he's the goat, is that his message was great. It was the greatness of his message. Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I love this about John. He doesn't say, well, let me give you five reasons to become a better you. John doesn't say, well, let me tell you how you can inspire other people. Let, let me give you three reasons how you can become, how you can fulfill your destiny, how you can have a better self-image. Now, what does John do? He goes to the Bible. He goes to the source. 
He goes to Scripture. He's, he's, he's so quick. He goes immediately to the Bible. He says, let me quote to you. Let me explain Isaiah the prophet to you. His message was not opinion. He goes to God's Word. The reason John the Baptist is great is because his message was great. His message was great. As the prophet Isaiah said, and he's saying, prepare your hearts, make straight, get ready, get ready for the Lord. He is here. And then this is the rest of his message, verse 29 and 30. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's message was great because it was rooted in the text of Scripture and it was centered on the finished work of Jesus. This is the measure of greatness. The measure of greatness is proximity to Jesus. It's humility in light of who Jesus is. And it's the message about Jesus that is great. John's message is, behold, the substitutionary Lamb of God. Why is he the substitute? Because he's going to take away your sin. You've got a problem. You and God, there's a problem. There's a real problem between you and God. God is just and you're a sinner and there's a problem because God will punish sin. And so what he does is he sends a substitute who's going to die as a lamb in your place. And because of that death, he's your substitute and he takes away your sin. And this theme is actually filled through the scriptures. Right the way from the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, remember? And God provides a lamb so that Isaac, his son, is not killed. And then the Exodus, in the Exodus story, we, we, we hear about the Passover lamb, how the people were rescued because of a lamb. And we go to the temple as the Old Testament unfolds, and the temple, what was at the center of the temple was sacrifices where a lamb would be slain. And we move to the prophets, and we read in the prophets about the lamb who was slain for us, crushed for our sins, who bore our iniquities. And we read in the New Testament how the apostles unpack who is this person. And here John is telling us that with the arrival of the Lamb is the end of all the old sacrifices. It's the end of all the ser servant pr promises of God. It's, it's, it's arrival of the kingdom of God. I love this statement. That what we see here in this behold the lamb statement is that John is declaring to us that the logos, in the beginning was the word, the logos, he's now saying the logos in verse 1 is the lamb. Behold, the logos, the eternal son of God is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here's the final response. I mean, this is just such good news. Because windows, uh, witnesses are windows, win witnesses are messengers, but we don't end there because witnesses are worshipers. This isn't just a, a confession of faith. It is worship. John, John is not wanting to just have a conversation about the Logos now, let's think it through. The Logos, oh, wow, the Logos is the Lamb. No, no, he's behold. Worship, behold the Lamb. Worship him. 
This is the point. You don't worship anyone other than God. If Jesus is not God, don't worship him. But John is convinced. John is convinced that Jesus is the Logos. He's the Lamb. He takes away sin. What's the bottom line? God rescues us. He takes our sin. God himself paid the price. Worship him. Behold the Lamb. And so I finish with Revelation 5 verse 12. And John the Apostle wrote this also. He said, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, right? They're not discussing it. They are worshiping. And what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And he must receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We too are witnesses, church. We too are witnesses. Witnesses that are windows. Help people to see Jesus. Help people to see Jesus through your life. How you live your life matters. You are a window. What are people seeing? And what is the message? You are a voice. Be the voice. Be a humble voice. Don't be an arrogant voice. Be a humble voice. And then be a worshiper. Worship so that others might see who Jesus is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. More importantly than just thinking it through and discussing it and wrestling with it, we want to be moved to worship. We want to declare with the Apostle John and with John the Baptist, we want to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Maybe you can just say those words under your breath, in your heart, in your mind right now. But make it personal. Say, thank you, Jesus, for taking away my sin. Thank you, Jesus. You are the lamb that was slain for taking away my sin. You deserve worship. You deserve my devotion. You deserve my everything. The Logos is the Lamb. The eternal Son of God died for me. I don't have to doubt. I don't have to ever think, does God love me? My goodness, He loves me. The Logos became a Lamb and died for me. What love is this? This is extravagant love. Church, we are so loved that God would take on flesh and like a lamb be slaughtered for us. Lord, we confess our sins were so grievous that you needed to die. Yes, we feel loved, but at the same time, we feel the weight of our sin, that it took so much to get rid of it that you had to die. And so we gladly confess, Lord, we are sinners. And we need 
your saving work. And we thank you that we have a sufficient Savior. Because our Savior is not just a prophet. Our Savior is not Elijah. Our Savior is not John the Baptist. Our Savior is Jesus, who is God. We are saved by God himself. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we want to come to your table as we take communion. And we want to ask that you would deepen our worship for you now. As we think on your body and your, and your blood that was shed for us, Lord, we want, to, we want to search our own hearts. And we want to behold you, the Lamb.